0: series that I'm excited about. Over the summer, we'll spend the next eight weeks looking at the parables of Jesus. You see that the new banners up here. Um, Thank you, uh, Brian Brown, Deacon Brian, for your work in designing those. They look great. Uh, And we'll take kind of this this summer series to look at the the parables of Jesus, the truths hidden in plain sight. That's what a a parable is and what it communicates, a a truth that's hidden in plain sight. And this story helps us to, to see it. If you if you track that into kind of an a, a acrostic, truths hidden in plain sight, you get the acrostic Phipps. So we, we thought about titling the series Phipps Don't Lie, but uh, ultimately thought better of it and decided just to go with parables, truths hidden in plain sight. But this particular parable, the, the, the truth of grace, of the vineyard workers was, was very intentionally selected to begin the series, because you never graduate from grace, right? The, the heart of the message of the Bible, the heart of the message of Christianity is the message of grace. And so we intentionally start with the parable that brings out explicitly the, the truth of grace. And maybe you're familiar with the concept of grace or maybe you're not quite certain what it means. You see it all over the place. There's lots of churches named grace. There's a, a college in Northern Indiana named grace. If, You've spent any time around you know, the church or religious people, certainly you've heard the word grace tossed out. There was a, a 2021 TV show on the uh, BBC called Grace. Maybe you're just familiar with grace as somebody's name or a, a term of simple elegance. She was very graceful. So biblically speaking, what is grace? That seems like a good place to start. Most simply stated, you could just say it's unmerited favor unmerited favor. Or or if you want to stick with the acrostic, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard it said that way, God's riches at Christ's expense. Or to to give an example or an analogy, you could think of it this way, where our nation is having a a conversation right now about student debt and what to do with it, right? Should should it be canceled? And and some say, yes, it, it should be canceled, and others should say, no, to cancel it is to throw it onto somebody else and make them pay for it. And uh, depending on where you fall on the issue, maybe you've got different, different viewpoints there. But grace from a biblical standpoint is to say that all of our debts from the ways that we've turned away from God and gone our own way, that's created a debt of sin against God. And in Christ, all of that debt was transferred onto him and he took it all. And not only did he take it all and say, you no longer have any life debt, any college debt, any sin debt, I'm also going to give you a $200 per day food per diem and I'm gonna give you a luxury apartment and I'm gonna get you set up with a job that starts at 150K a year for the entry level position and I'm going to give you a company car and I'm gonna just bestow abundant grace on you after taking all of your debts. That's a little bit what grace is like and so if you were to, to summarize the whole Uh, sermon in a sentence, it would be this. You would say, the abundant generosity of God's grace must capture our attention. Now, to take the example I just gave, if that was you and you owed $80,000 in college debt and it was immediately canceled and you were immediately given all of those other benefits I outlined, that would capture your attention. Like, whoa, this is the greatest day of my life. I've been set up on a trajectory that is incredible. The abundant generosity of God's grace must capture our attention. And so as we begin this series in the parables, it's important to note the nature of these parables. You see, the point of most of them, if not all of them, is not that you would learn brand new information. No, the point is that you would see things more clearly There's truths that you already know, and they're hidden sometimes, and the parable brings it into plain sight so that you can see more clearly what you likely already know. That to say, this morning, as we look at the truth of grace, you may know many facts about grace. You may have theological knowledge of grace, but the reality is that for all of us, myself included, our view of grace is almost always cloudier than we think, it's like we think we're seeing it in 4K, but it's actually buffering. And we think we see it so clearly. I remember the first time I ever watched HD TV. I don't know if you can remember that. I was watching an NBA game. And the thing that struck me was this guy was shooting free throws. And there was two things about him that I already knew, but I saw more clearly because of the invention of HD TV. One was the beads of sweat running down his forehead. I knew that guy's playing basketball sweat but I'd never seen an NBA player sweat that clearly. And I was also struck by the size of his bicep. I knew mine didn't look that way, and I knew his were bigger than mine, but I'd never seen it quite that clearly before. And similarly, the parables take things that we already knew were true, and yet they give us a new vision and help us to see it in a much clearer way than what we'd seen before. So all that being said, what's our outline this morning to see the truth of grace? We'll look at it in four parts. One, the context of grace, then we'll see the giver of grace, third, receivers of grace, and fourth, results of grace. So that the context of grace, the giver of grace, receivers of grace, and then results of grace. So we start at the first point, the context of grace. I've told you this before and we will continue to say it. You have two key tools for Bible study. Whenever you open your Bible, two tools you want to use are the context and word studies. See what it says around it. That helps you to know what this actually mean. And then you study the specific words, their definitions. Other times they're used in the Bible. Those are critical tools for learning to study and to know our Bible. And if we miss the context, we'll often miss what the Bible is trying to tell us. So the immediate context of this parable focuses on a wrong view of working for God and rewards from God. The immediate context focuses on a wrong view of working for God and rewards from God. So if you look just back at your copy of God's Word and look back into chapter 19, the immediately preceding context, starting in verse 16, you ought to see a little heading that says something about the rich young ruler. Now, if you're at all familiar with that story, here's a man who thought he could earn salvation by keeping all the rules. He came to Jesus and said, I've kept all the rules since I was a little boy. Have I done enough? Have I earned my way into your kingdom? And Jesus questions him and says, well, have you sold everything or would you be willing to sell everything? And he says, no, I I wouldn't, and he walks away. In other words, saying he wouldn't give up everything. He'd keep the rules, but he wouldn't give it all up. And so immediately following that, if you're still looking at chapter 19, there's a little dialogue with Jesus and the disciples. And Peter says, basically, hey, Jesus, unlike that other guy, we have given up everything to follow you. We've left our families. We've left our jobs. We've left our riches. We've given it all up. Haven't we done enough here? And Jesus very interestingly says, Hey, if you've left all these things, you will inherit eternal life. Now, it's a key little play on words that Jesus gives there because he says, Yes, you've given up more, and that's good, and that's required that you die to self, pick up your cross, follow me. You've got to, once you put your hand to the plow, not look back. Peter, good job. But he doesn't say, catch what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, Peter, you've given up everything, therefore you've earned eternal life. No, he says, therefore you have inherited eternal life. You don't work for an inheritance, it's given. And right after both of those little dialogues comes this parable. It's in the context of saying wrong views of working for God, the rich young ruler thought he could get away with keeping a little back for himself, and rewards from God where Peter thought, maybe I could earn my way to heaven. And she says, no, 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 you've misunderstood Peter. You inherit eternal life. So you would say it this way to, to summarize then, that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace says you cannot earn your way to God, but it does not reduce or oppose or work against the need to exert efforts for God in following God. This is so important for us to understand that grace is opposed to earning not effort because perhaps the most widespread heresy in all the world gets this wrong and it says basically, if I'm a relatively good person, I'll live with God forever and eternity. I'll go to heaven if I'm a decent person. I can earn that by living a basically good life. It's the most widespread uh, heresy in all the world, and it is 100% false. There is nothing you can do ever to earn a relationship with God or eternity with God. It's wholly of grace. But there's another clue in the context that we need to see. Look back again at chapter 19 and in verse 30. We'll see a phrase repeated three times in a row. Chapter 19, verse 30, we read, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Notice in verse 30 there, that word many. That's important that it says many, not all. I'll come back to that in a minute. It says many who are first will be last, and the last first. Then let your eyes fall down to chapter 20, and verse 16. We read again this almost identical phrase. So the last will be first, And the first, last. And then, let your eyes fall down again, a little bit further in chapter 20, into the next little story, uh, starting in verse 26 of chapter 20, we read, "...but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So across the story before, the parable, and the story after, you see this phrase linking all of them. Connectments, it's all kind of encapsulated in one. The context is saying, many who are first will be last, and the last first. What's the point of it? The point is that appearances can be deceiving. But God looks on the heart. That some can appear to be grace-filled, humble people, and they actually are. It says, many who are first will be last, Many, but not all. So many will appear to be grace-filled. Many will appear to be spirit-filled. Many will appear to be humble. Many will appear to be doing things for God and actually won't be. But some will. And others you will completely overlook. They are humble people filled with the spirit of God, following him with everything they've got and we just tend to look right over them and we don't see them. And the last will be first. You see, there's, there's truth hidden in plain sight here that grace will produce works, but pride can also produce works. So be discerning and be wise. With that, with that little bit of context there, it helps us to come to the parable, knowing what comes before, what comes after, what unites it all, and start to look more specifically at the parables. That brings us to our second point, the giver of grace. The giver of grace. Now, if you're taking notes or you jot these things in the the margin of your Bible, the giver in this parable represents God the Father. Important to note that. The giver represents God the Father. So if you're looking down in Matthew 20, verse 1, we see uh, the master of the house, he's called. And then in verse 8, he's called the owner of the vineyard. Verse 11, drop down a little bit more, he's called the master of the house clearly portraying God the Father, the master, the owner, who's over all of it. And in the parable, what we're seeing about the giver of grace is this beautifully rich picture of who God is. It's like a five-course meal that's just oozing flavors of all different sorts along the way, meant to just encapsulate you in the goodness of it, the taste, the smells, the aroma, the beautiful ways it's laid out. See, whoa, what a beautiful giver of grace he is. If you just quickly move through the the parable, the master seeks the workers out. Verse one says he went out, he sought them. And in a a similar way, God is the one who sovereignly initiates grace because there's nobody who's seeking him. Were he not seeking sinners, no one would be recipients of his grace. And were the master not seeking workers, none would come to work for him. We see the master continuously calling, right? At, at, At the third hour, which represents about 9 a.m. So the Jewish day is 6a to 6p, so that the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour, noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., the eleventh hour, 5 p.m. All through the day, the master is continually calling, going out seeking more workers. Similarly, God the Father is continually calling. He says, where are there more people I can extend grace to? And where can I extend more grace to those I've already called? The master of the vineyard, the owner of it, generously sets the terms. A denarius is the payment. It's about a day's wage. And these these day laborers needed that full day's wage. And so whether they worked a whole day or only one hour, he generously gives them a full day's wage. Similarly, God the Father generously gives eternal life to all who would follow him. Whether they followed him for 80 years or 80 seconds whether they've given immense amount of their time, talent and treasure to him or they've given none at all because they just got saved at the end of their life he generously gives eternal life to all who will follow him the master of the house the vineyard sees that these day workers are very needy you see the day laborers in that culture were among the neediest and among the least protected members in all society you think about being dependent upon daily contract labor. It does not put you in an economically stable position, and it doesn't give you a socially elevated position. See, if they didn't have these labor, the, uh, the work provided and the full day's wage, it's not like they had a big bank account to lean on for food for the day. They would starve without this. And so then the master sees their neediness. And yes, he's helped by their work, but they're more helped than he is. They need him more than he needs them, might be a different way of saying that. And, And God the Father, in a similar way, is seeing us as spiritual beggars. There's nowhere for us to go for grace except to him. There's no source of life except from him. We need him way more than he needs us. You see the generosity just oozing on every single layer of this giver of grace. And yet, in the conclusion of all of it, at the end, a complaint is brought. You were unjust. You weren't generous enough. Who are you to take this from me or give more to them? And yet, even in that, even in that, he's so generous and gracious in his response. Look back at Matthew 20, verse 13. Look at this. They complain in verse 13. What is the, what's the very first word of verse 13? Friend. I'm doing you no wrong. Friend. Even in their complaints. And as the master responds to them, so God responds to us. In fact, in John 15, Jesus would say, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Clear imagery being tied in there, saying friend of God. That's who you are. If you have followed me, if you've received my grace, I've taken all of your debts and I've bestowed grace upon grace upon grace to you. And it's not just on your good days. Catch this. This is on the worst complaint, perhaps, that these folks have ever leveraged. In the the midst of that complaint, in the midst of their spiritually hard and unthankful hearts, he leads with friend. He doesn't roll his eyes at their entitlement. He doesn't smirk when they lose their step. He doesn't thunder down judgment when they miss the mark. He doesn't give the silent treatment when they're bitter or hold a grudge. Why? Why is that? Why does he lead with friend? Because he knows that them and us have something very much in common. It's that all of our spiritual engines generally, naturally run at about 5,000 RPMs trying to prove that we're good enough. We naturally are redlining, trying to say, yes, God, I'm, I'm a good person. You should be proud of me. You should see the things that I've done. I'm trying to earn your favor. And he's gently, graciously helping you to downshift, to put it into first gear and let him drive to enjoy him and being in his presence. He's saying, just be with me because I love you. I abundantly give grace to you so that my relationship with you is contingent upon my grace and Christ's performance, not your goodness or your performance. You can relax. It depends on me, not on you. And so a clear and unmistakable image of this master of the house, this giver of grace, begins to emerge. The owner demonstrates abundant generosity with layer upon layer upon layer of undeserved goodness. It's a similar picture of what we get in Psalm 16, verse 11, where the psalmist would say, In your presence are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Grace upon grace upon grace flows from the giver. This brings us then to the the next set of characters, number three in our outline this morning, the receivers of grace. The receivers of grace are representative in the the parable of God's people. And they're sort of an unfolding story. The the character development of, of the receivers is somewhat thick, you might say. See, some are hired early in the day, some in the middle of the day, some late in the day, and we're not told really anything about why that is. So clearly, that's not the point. We're not supposed to fixate on why did some of these guys get hired at nine, some at noon, some at three, some at five. That's not the point. Where the parable zooms in is on those who were hired early in the day, who worked hard for the master. That's the thing we're supposed to see. So the truth hidden in plain sight is that there is a particular danger for those who have been hard at work for the master for a long time. So just pause and identify, is that me? Matthew 20 says the truth hidden in plain sight is that there is a particular danger for those who have been hard at work for the master for a long period of time. It's telling us that spiritual pride has a long latency period. It can grow, it can develop, it can fester in your soul without showing outward symptoms for quite some time. Because these guys were blind to it, and it was, it was so obvious to everybody else around, but they didn't see it in themselves. And like them, it is so easy for us to genuinely love Jesus, but meditate briefly on him before dwelling long upon the work that we've done for him that we can easily love the reward more than we love Jesus, that we can desire the gifts more highly than we desire the giver, that we can love what our dad can give us more than we actually love our dad himself. There is massive danger for us here. We must not miss how we are so very like these receivers of grace in Matthew 20. At the end of the parable, The the punchline comes from the whole thing. The biggest truth hidden in plain sight. Look back at verse 16. We read this previously. It's repeated before, during, and after the parable. And it is the the high mark, the, the crescendo of the parable where Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. In other words, saying it's so easy for you to be filled up with what you're doing for God before you're being with God. You've got to see there's major danger here. See, the last are people who are not esteemed by the world. They're not even esteemed by the church. Their skills may not seem obvious to anyone, but they are marked by humility. They know they are debtors in need of God's grace to come in and wipe out that massive college debt. They don't pretend that there's a surplus in their account. You see, leading up to this parable, we would find accounts of Jesus saying, Bring the little children to me. People that didn't seem that valuable in the kingdom of God. Jesus bringing lepers, blind men, paralytics, a Canaanite woman, a reject. And I wonder, I wonder if Matthew doesn't see himself here a bit. Matthew, the tax collector, perhaps the most hated of all people in that day, saying, nobody sees me as valuable for the kingdom of God. And Jesus saying, I see you. And if you'll receive my grace, I will use you in mighty ways that you would never imagine because it doesn't depend on you, it depends on me. That's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1, that God would use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise things of the world. He would use the weak things of the world to shame the strong things of the world because what seems obvious to us is not always reality. That's the last that become first. The first who become last are those who are seen as as skilled, as influential, as powerful, as consequential and useful for the kingdom of God. I want them on my team, we would say. It's important to see here that it's not wrong to be skilled. It's not wrong to have gifts, but to recognize that your skills and your gifts aren't enough, they're not essential. To go back to the parable, working hard all day is good. It was right of those laborers to use their skills and to work hard all day. But humble faith and dependence on grace is what's essential. The problem wasn't that they worked hard and were very fruitful in their labors. The problem is they began to say, look how much I've done, instead of saying, look how much you've done. That's why it's so significant in 1930, chapter 19, verse 30, that says, many who are first shall be last. It's not wrong to have skills. It's wrong to rely on those instead of and over the grace of God. That is to say, it is possible to be gifted and humble, but it's hard. So the question we have to begin to ask, continue to ask, is am I truly humble? We talked recently, the last couple weeks, about how much God hates pride all over the Bible. So hard to see it in ourselves, because everybody knows somebody who's really narcissistic. You just had somebody come to your mind right there. It's not hard to think of the narcissist in the family or in the office or on your cul-de-sac who's always talking about themselves. It's hard to see it in ourselves. Yet Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12, if anyone thinks that he's staying, take heed lest he fall. Look inward. You see, the grumbling laborers in the parable, they knew they had nowhere else to turn. They knew they were dependent upon the master for labor and for the denarius by which they could buy bread for their family. Yet somewhere along the way, they became way more aware of their own abilities than the master's generosity. They had the head knowledge that we need you, we need your grace, master, we need your generosity. But along the way, their eyes got shifted to seeing, here's what I bring to the table. That is to say, that one mark that you're growing in grace, sermon is the truth about grace, one mark of growing in grace is that I'm becoming more and more and more aware of my dependence upon the master. I see my sinfulness, I see my deficiencies, I see my weaknesses. My spiritual weaknesses more clearly. I don't just see that my hip hurts more as I get older, I see that my soul needs Jesus more as I get older. And if you track the Apostle Paul's writing, it's so fascinating to see how this developed in his life. So one of his first letters his 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, he would write that he was the least of the apostles. So there's the, the 15 spiritual all-stars, we might call them. And he says, Yeah, I'm kind of a bench warmer. I'm not that great. And a little while longer, he writes the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. So theoretically, he'd be growing in grace, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, growing in spiritual maturity. And as he does that, he says, I'm no longer the bench warmer on the all star team. I'm barely on any of the teams. I'm the least of the saints. And then one of his later letters, 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, I'm the foremost of all the sinners. So through the progression of Paul's life, his early stuff, he says, I'm a bench warner, we're on the all-star team. And he grows in spiritual maturity and says, I'm barely on any of the teams. And he grows in spiritual maturity and says, man, I need grace. I'm so spiritually weak. I'm so sinful. I'm so full of what I bring to the table instead of what Christ brings to the table. That's one critical mark and way of knowing that you're actually growing in grace. Dan Doriani would say it this way. He said, sadly, many take God's generosity for granted so that amazing grace has become boring grace. It's boring because we no longer think of ourselves as sinners or at least not as great sinners. We think we are rather good compared to most. So you say, Justin, I don't want to be that person, but how is it that I grow in grace? How is it that I grow in seeing my sinfulness? And it's, it's not a special formula. You don't need the latest cookbook to know how to do this. It's through basic habits of grace, common graces that God has given us, through time in his word, through prayer, through a commitment to fasting. You know, fasting is hard enough in its own right, but would you consider fasting a meal a week, a day a week, asking the Lord specifically, show me where I'm sinning and I don't even see it in my life. And I'll give up food for a meal or a day so that I can be even more attuned to Holy Spirit, what you're saying in my life. We grow in grace by a commitment to corporate worship and being together with the people of God, hearing their voices sing the truths of God, sitting under the preaching of the word of God, and we grow in grace in that way. We grow in grace by living in fellowship with one another and serving together in growing through relationships, confessing sin to one another, praying for one another. But I tell you, one way that I have become so aware of sin in my life is I try and pray for other people And I know all the things I want to pray about in my life, and it's hard to remember things to pray about in somebody else's life. Like, boy, I'm pretty focused on myself because I don't even know what to pray for for you. Last week, we gave out those little membership directories. If you didn't get one, I think they're back in the bookstore. I'd encourage you to pick one up on the way out today. That may be your application point. I'm gonna pick up one of those guys, and I'm gonna start praying for every single person at this church to think of others and Ask the Lord to help me to grow in grace in that way. And the parable tells us one of the core ways that we know that spiritual pride has metastasized in our hearts. One of those core ways, we've seen it metastasize is when we begin to complain against God and say that he's not generous enough. He owes me something else. How could he do this to me? We say, that's not fair, and we Lose sight of the gift that was given, the generosity in giving eternal life. Look back at verse 10 with me of Matthew chapter 20. We see this in the receivers of grace. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. The, the verb tense right there around the word complaint, we lose it a little bit in the English. And in, in the Greek, it carries the idea of an ongoing, a festering complaint, almost a mutiny of sorts. They're picketing, they're so angry about this. It's not a subtle under-the-breath comment here. No, these guys are fired up and they're angry about it. They're saying, master, don't you see everything that we've invested here? Don't you see all we've given? Don't you see the sunburn on our backs? Don't you notice our aching muscles? This vineyard work is hard. The soil there was rocky. So generally they'd be required to dig the rocks out, build a terrace with the rocks where you build the wall in there, and then haul fresh dirt in from a long distance away, usually over the mountain, and dump it in. That's hard work in the heat of summer. So they were right in saying how hot the sun had been and how hard they'd worked. They just lost sight of the master's generosity. It brings us back to what I said before is the most widespread heresy in all the world. If I work pretty hard, If I live a pretty good life, God will be proud of me and he'll let me into heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's holy of grace, always the generosity of God. And the parable begins to subtly tell us that because the first ones to get paid were the late arrivers, thinking, gosh, can't I at least get my cash first? You start to feel that, the blood pressure rise a little, a little bit of the anger, Why did they get to go first? And then what was sort of subtle becomes overt and obvious. When those who arrived at the 11th hour and worked one day received the exact same full day's wage as the guys who'd been there bearing the heat of the sun the entire day. And what is it they say? The all day long guys? They said, you've made them equal to us. We're better than them. We've worked harder than them. We've labored more than them. How could you elevate them, Master? That's so unjust of you. And of course, in the example, the the parable, it seems sort of obvious. That's why it's a truth hidden in plain sight. Because we have to ask, how would I do this? I can scoff at them, don't do that. This is a truth about my heart and your heart. It's not only a truth about first century hearts, it's a truth about human hearts. Imagine yourself arriving at the gates of heaven, having trusted wholly in the person and work of Christ, none of your own, and your mansion that you're waiting for is right next to a terrorist or a school shooter. You say, You've made them equal to me. Your mansion is right next to a boss or a spouse who has made your life incredibly difficult for years. How could they be here equal to me? It's Pride Month. June, imagine you get to heaven and there's a a political activist that you can't stand. You see all the ways they're destroying the culture, the society, the country, the world. And they're Somehow, unbeknownst to you, have repented of their sin, have followed Jesus, have a mansion right next to yours. You've made them equal to me. Guys, it doesn't depend on our performance. It's upon grace that none of us deserve. It's so easy for pride to slip in and to think that I'm above them. The master's saying, guys, let your RPMs come down. Quit revving the engine of your own good works and fall on grace. Don't you see there was no hope for you if I wouldn't have extended grace in the first place? You never would have had a job to get this denarius to pay for bread and you never would have had eternal life had I not generously and graciously pursued you. Verse 15, what does the master say? Look down, he says, Do you begrudge my generosity? Have you begun to think that you deserve it? We just sang a song to open the service today, the Christ, our hope in life and death. And there's a line in there that that we sang. What truth can calm the troubled soul. God is good. God is good. And I wonder if sometimes we believe that and sometimes we sing it but don't. And the story of our life, the song of our life, says, what truth can calm my troubled soul? The truth that calms my soul is that I worked hard for you, Jesus. That's what I take solace in. What truth can calm my troubled soul? I didn't yell at my kids today, Jesus. I stayed late to help my lazy coworker, even though I knew I wouldn't benefit. That's what calms my soul today, Jesus. That I took a stand at my job, and it cost me that's what I'm proud of, Jesus. That's what comforts this soul. I didn't curse at that maniac who cut me off on 465. That's where I find solace for my soul today. I had self control. Friends, our souls are often calmed by something besides God is good. God is good. And when that calming comes from a different place than the good generosity of God, we are on the exact same path as those day laborers who begrudge God's generosity. Those are the receivers of grace. We have to take a long inward look there. So as we consider where they're at, the context, and then the giver, the receivers, it brings us forth and finally to the results of grace, to the results of grace. Of grace? What are the results of receiving God's riches at Christ's expense? What are the results of receiving unmerited favor? Well, there are certainly more than we could count in our remaining five to ten minutes here, but let me just point out two of them for you from the parable. Here's the first result of grace. Number one, grace excludes grumbling. Grace excludes grumbling. It leaves no room for me to grumble against God. The reality is we grumble against God more than we realize. Sometimes it comes out verbally. Sometimes it's a thought we dwell on. And other times it's almost subconscious, but it's just rattling around back there in our psyche, thinking that God ought to give us something better than he has. And all over the Bible, you see God bringing to light evidence of his people grumbling against him not merely to say the people back then were really bad but so that we'll see it and recognize yeah i'm a lot like them too so let me just share a couple of those examples so that we can see this numbers 11 1 go back to the very beginning of the old testament now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the lord and when the lord heard it his anger was kindled the fire of the lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp Or Numbers 21, a few few chapters later. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They complained, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Begrudge the generous gift of deliverance from Egypt. For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Did you hear what they said there? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this food. There's nothing to eat in this house. Means I don't like peanut butter and jelly and bananas and blueberries. We begrudge generosity, grace upon grace that's been given. We just want something different. Philippians 2, Paul would write simply, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then to sum it all up and to help us understand how it fits together, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 would write the following on the screen, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And catch this part here. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. They were written down for our instruction. They were an example to us. So when I can't fathom why God would bless that person or that business, or that school, or that church, grace teaches me that I've received way more than I ever deserve. And when I don't understand what's going on in my life, when my life feels like a tornado, and I'm strapped to the inside of it, and I can't get out of it, and God, what are you doing here? Why would you do it this way? Grace teaches me that I've received way more than I ever deserve. It teaches me that God is always good, just like the moon is always round. And sometimes the clouds cover the moon and I can't see how round it is, but it's always round. And sometimes it's only partially lit up and I can only see a sliver of a waxing or waning crescent. But the moon is always round and grace teaches me that God is is always good, even when I can't see it all. And the great part about this is that grace even extends to us in our grumbling. That when we grumble, how does God respond? Friend, I love you, I'm here for you. I've already forgiven your grumbling. It leads us to sing marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, Yonder on Calvary's Mount Outpour, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all our sin. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within, even cleanse us from our grumbling. That's the first result. Grace excludes grumbling. Second result of grace grace inspires work. Grace inspires work. Grace brings us to see Jesus not only as Savior who delivers from hell, but also Lord who has authority over my life. You see, in the parable, Jesus very easily could have said, "Oh, the master went to the marketplace, found people who had no work and no money, picked them up, carried them to his house, set them in the chair, and gave them money for food. Doesn't say that. He said, come, work in my vineyard come work, come labor alongside me in my kingdom. And few people would say that grace doesn't inspire work. Right, few people are like, oh, no, no, just stop, don't, just don't do anything. Maybe, maybe you've heard it said, I've heard this said, once saved, always saved. That's a true statement. If you're saved, you'll always be saved. But a better way to talk about it would be to say, once saved, always following. i um, always following Jesus, that the saints will persevere until the end. Matthew 7, Jesus would say, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is actually a Christian. There are people who have the right words, and their life does not manifest the saving grace of Jesus. There's a little book in our our library, a little yellow book called Conversion, Conversion is a critical book for us, especially as we work with kids, parents, Sunday school teachers, any kind of teacher for that matter, to think about, are our kids merely professing with their mouth, or are we seeing a transformed life that follows out of it? I'd encourage you to pick that up this afternoon. Great little book to help us think about how grace inspires a changed life. It inspires work. Unless you think I'm just pulling this stuff out of thin air, let me give you a couple of passages that talk about it as we wrap up here. Hebrews 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Very end of Hebrews, the whole message of the gospel's been laid out. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands, that's work. Strengthen your weak knees, that's work. Make straight paths, that's work. Be healed, that's work. Strive for peace with everyone. Well, if COVID taught us anything, that's a, a task, right? Strive for peace with everyone. Or Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace appears. And what does it do? It brings salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It trains us for godliness. It trains us to work. See guys, the reality is this, that striving for holiness with a blurry view of grace is exhausting. It's exhausting. At the beginning, I used an example of student debt. I've referenced it a couple of times throughout if you're in that context and somebody takes all your debts and they give you all the blessings that I spoke of and they say, hey, I want you to come and mow the yard this afternoon. I want you to come over and plant some flowers. You're going to say, yes, your grace inspires my work. I see it as insignificant because of the grace that you've given to me. You didn't do it so I would work, but it does inspire brings us back to say wow the abundant generosity of God's grace is mind-blowing it must capture our attention and perhaps for the very first time this morning you've heard that there was a heresy you were believing that you could be good enough to get your way to heaven friends it's not true no amount of work can get it there grace is opposed to earning you can't earn your way And I'd urge you to cry out to Jesus, asking him to take all of your sin debt and ask him to give you all of his righteousness, all of God's riches at Christ's expense and to save you. And maybe you've just lost sight of that. You've been a Christian for some time and what you thought was a 4K view of grace has become a little pixelized. It's been buffering for a little while. It's stuck there. And this truth hidden in plain sight, this parable, brings you back to just how good God is. That excludes our grumbling, it inspires our work, and a heart of gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. that you would love us so richly and so deeply, that your goodness would be so abundant. We are so undeserving. We receive it and still complain. Or we don't get busy working for you. We ask that your abundant generosity this morning would capture our attention. You would change us to be more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.